Take a network break. It's our first show of the new year, and we're here with a basket of fresh, warm virtual donuts for your enjoyment. On today's episode, we've got acquisition deals, a new partnership between HPE and Cumulus, the debut of a new network OS, a Cisco conversation, and much more. First, let's do a little business. Our show is sponsored in part by Viavi Solutions, a network performance management leader, enabling IT teams to understand user experience so they can solve performance problems fast. Learn more at viavisolutions.com slash packet pushers. Our sponsor today is also thousands they give you performance visibility from every user to every app over any network, both internal and external, so you can migrate to the cloud, troubleshoot faster, and deliver exceptional user experience. You can sign up for a free account at thousandeyes.com slash packet pushers. And after the news, you can hear a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with global property management company Cushman and Wakefield about how they're using SD-WAN from Silverpeak to support their cloud-first strategy. That was a good chat, that one, because he was a, he's got a lot of sites. He's done a lot of sites and some interesting stories to tell about that. Absolutely. Yeah, those are always interesting conversations when a customer comes on. So, yeah, stick around, check it out. Um, mm. Let's get it. Before we get the news, Greg, we've got some FU. Uh, yeah, so uh, last show, the last, last show of last year, uh, we asked you to whether the sound effects were a good idea, and uh, I am crushed. Chastened. <laughs> no, I'm crushed. Emotionally, I am distraught. <laughs> That people overwhelmingly voted against having sound effects. So, yes. uh, the votes so were that's, very uh, clear. <laughs> <laughs> However, the path to innovation shall not be denied. I shall instead be singing selected pieces of popular songs, such as Osola Mio. What do you think? I don't know. I, <laughs> I can already hear the FUs coming in. <laughs> I'm going to say okay, that's great. a no, but <laughs> not to mention whether we have uh, the licensing ability for those songs. But anyway. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, yeah, no, the overwhelming response was that the the sound spikes or the little noises that we put in were just way too cheesy for the packet pushers. And we should have had more self-respect, I think, was the summary. So um, tip of the cap to the adult inclinations of our audience. Yes, that's it. So do keep the feedback coming in because the shows have been running too long. We are going to run extra shows with all the follow-up that you send us. So we've been running them. Uh, so if we have to issue a, a retraction or a correction, that will always run. But if we're just going to talk about general follow-up, we're going to publish them in a special all-follow-up show as we build up enough follow-up. So do send them in and you can submit them anonymously. We don't need your name. We don't want to know who you are. Just send us your FU and then we'll select which ones to go forward with. And it can be good, bad, criticism. Tell us we're wrong. Tell us we're right. Tell us more information about a topic and go over to packetpushers.net slash FU to submit your follow-up. Let's make 2020 the year of FU. <laughs> Sorry, I had to be a little childish. All right, let's get to the news. Uh, Cumulus, they've announced a deal with HPE in which the Cumulus Linux Network OS is going to be available on HPE's StoreFabric M-Series Ethernet switches. Uh, you don't normally see Cumulus getting into Ethernet storage fabric, so I thought this was interesting. Uh, the company is actually using this as a backdoor opportunity to try to penetrate HPE. That is, they're working with the storage team at HPE to see if other opportunities emerge with other BUs inside HPE. And uh, it's quite good to think that, uh, in, and from a technical point of view, the Mellanox switches are very low latency. Um, and so yeah, that's storage... should say HPE's M-series are from Mellanox, yes. Yeah, the, the rebadged SN2700 from the look of it. Um, so the modern, you know, X2 series of Mellanox silicon, very high speed, very low latency. Yep. Um, so it's a good deal for storage. Um, and use of Cumulus, Mellanox has got a very good partnership with Cumulus, but it also has its own Mellanox OS. So it's a little odd to think they're partnering with Cumulus. I think Cumulus must have some features 
that are suitable for storage or maybe they're doing something unique here. It's a little hard to tell, but Mellanox and Cumulus have been building a good relationship, but Mellanox also has its own OS, which you can choose to put on those switches as well. And Mellanox is heading to do more open, so let you put other code onto those switches. Yeah. But it's an odd, it's an odd partnership, don't you think? I do. I think the Cumulus Mellanox partnership makes sense. They've actually been working together very closely. And we, I saw a Tech Field Day event a couple of years ago where they're talking about their EVP and VX land capabilities. But I did speak to Cumulus about this deal. I asked them, did you have to do anything with your uh, OS to, to tweak it or optimize it for a storage Ethernet network? They said, no, it's pretty much, they just did some testing, but it's just Cumulus Linux out of the box. So uh, I guess it's good for low latency switching. Uh, but the, the, the thing that's strange to me is HPE working with Cumulus uh, on this because they do have Aruba, which is making a lot of noise about its own switching capabilities, its own network OS. So uh, there seems to be some mm-hmm. internal, uh, I don't know, some gamesmanship maybe. Well, I think the flip side here is Plexi. They recently acquired Plexi to be their data center switching. You would have thought that the Plexi platform would have been suitable for this. Yes, that's right. Although it's probably very expensive. But at the same time, the point about the Plexi fabric, you know, if I remember back to what the Plexi fabric was all about, was that it could dynamically monitor the traffic flows and right. then adapt the buffering and the and change the paths across the network as the traffic came up. So the storage, you know, if the storage volumes get up to a certain point, the Plexi fabric could re-architect itself so it would be low latency. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that was the very point of Plexi, the Plexi fabric idea. Um, So it's kind of a bit baffling. It's it's another one of these things where HPE does these strange things where the left hand doesn't know what the right's doing. And if we look back the, you know, two years ago, maybe less, a year ago, it was Arista and HPE who are partnering to do the data center networking. We've seen Aruba do the Aruba Networks division start to get closer and closer to the data center, although most of its silicon is still only suited for the campus. So I have to assume that the HPE storage team needed an Ethernet play and couldn't get the Plexi or the Aruba folks to come along for the ride. That's how I'm reading this as well. And then Mellanox has got these great low latency switches. More importantly, they've got our a half size one, which is almost perfect for just straight up storage. Like I imagine there's a lot of customers out there who are still just buying the storage and they're buying these switches as like fiber channel switches, mm-hmm. except they just happen to be Ethernet, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, yes. So they run a completely separate storage network that they just connect their IP storage to and they treat it like it's its own thing. But uh, so this is a good move from the storage team's point of view. It's a uh, structurally HPE just continues to sort of have this love-hate relationship with networking. Aruba's not integrated. It holds itself at arm's length. It's it's a little confusing that you know why does HPE hate networking so much? It's it's it continues to be a problem. I mean, at the end of the day, HPE sells a lot of Arista, still sells a lot of Cisco. It's one of the biggest Cisco um, networking resellers in the world. At some point, they've got to bite the bullet and grow up, I think, and decide to to do their thing. This is also Cumulus's second dance with HPE. They did have a deal uh, where they were the network OS Mm -hmm. on HPE's Alto switches, and that just didn't really go anywhere. So now Cumulus is back for another bite at the Apple, this time through a different channel, the the storage side. So uh, great great for Cumulus. Uh, You know, they want to be on as many Mm -hmm. platforms as they can, and if they can demonstrate that they can operate successfully on an entire uh, storage Ethernet as opposed to just standard, you know, top of rack or campus switches, good for them. That's another uh, opportunity. But, yeah, HPE has a weird relationship with networking. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I I mean, it's good to see that they're doing something, and no doubt they're meeting a customer need, but it does feel a bit 
odd. Yes, and I have to wonder what the Aruba folks think of Cumulus trying to come in through a side door here, but uh, we'll see how this plays out. Mm, mm, for sure. Uh, speaking of Cumulus, the company is part of a new initiative from the Linux Foundation called Dent, D-E-N-T, Dent. It's yet another network OS. This one is being targeted at edge networking, and the first use case they're touting is retail environments. Premier members include Amazon, Cumulus, Mellanox, and Marvell. I think the secret is right there in the Amazon Cumulus Mellanox and Marvell. <laughs> Everything you need to know about this NOS is right there. Amazon has uh, obviously decided that it wants to put a network operating system out there so that it can disrupt networking. We know that Amazon has been quite uh, cantankerous about the cost of networking and how expensive networking devices and bandwidth is and have been on a crusade internally. You know, they were the first to adopt Whitebox and to buy their, make their own ASICs and make their own NICs and, you know, a lot of that stuff. And the first to sort of, you know, write their own network operating system, indeed, for routing and switching and so forth. So, and they continue to invest heavily there. Uh, in this case, it seems that Amazon is leading an effort to bring its interpretation of a NOS into the Linux Foundation and to build a community around it. Uh, what's unique about this implementation, as I understand it, is that they're using a kernel mode. So if you read from the Linux uh, Foundation website or the dent.dev website, it says it will utilize Linux kernel, switch dev, and other Linux-based projects as the basis for building a new standardized network operating system without abstractions or overhead. Now, that last bit there is a shot at SAI and Sonic. They come <laughs> in as binary blobs and, you know, like – uh, they don't. They, Amazon has been clear that they don't believe that the way that Sonic has gone is the right way forward. Microsoft, it works for Microsoft, but Amazon doesn't think so. So the the press release goes on. All underlying infrastructure, including the ASIC and silicon for networking and data path, will be treated equally. While existing abstractions, APIs, drivers, low level overhead, and other open software will be simplified. Now, so what what this means, I think, is that Amazon puts its networking functions into the Linux kernels, whereas most other organizations are putting the networking functionality into user space such as sonic via some sort of blob uh you know compiled blob it doesn't actually publish the code but the blob comes out and those blobs run in user space with published apis so it's following a different technology approach that amazon believes is the right way forward so it's not just another nos it's actually got a technology differentiation I think the other thing that's interesting to look at here is the partnership with Marvell, who is silicon, mm -hmm. and they have a range of campus silicon. So what you'll find inside of various vendors' campus switches is a lot of Marvell silicon is actually in that. They make lower cost, the sort of the, the one gig, 10 gig, built to a lower price point, smaller buffers, smaller TCAMs, that sort of stuff. Now, an area that Broadcom has not traditionally focused on, but as the campus networking starts to hot up, I imagine that we'll see more. So here, Amazon has partnered with Mellanox and Marvell. I could imagine that Mellanox would be very pleased to offer its switches in the 400 gig, 100 gig, as sort of like spine, uh, backbone spine, high-density campus spines. And uh, I think Amazon gets a lot out of this because if they can get a hold of the campus and, and sell their white boxes with their Outpost product, then that's possibly what they're looking for. I'm trying to figure out the value proposition for people other than Amazon. They're talking about uh, simple, easy-to-use uh, switches, that, and they're speak, speaking specifically of retail, which makes me think they assume retailers are looking for some easy switching solution to throw into their branches to get connectivity. But there's already a million cheap, low-cost switches out there, uh, and Cumulus mm -hmm. Linux will be happy to sell them their own NOS on a white box yeah. already. So th this, just, uh, this seems more like a consortium of for-profit vendors who see maybe a niche they can call carve out rather than a real community-driven product that sort of bubbled up organically to address a need. Yeah, 
I I see plenty of reasons why this won't work, and I also see reasons why it might. Amazon has an interest, as does Facebook, in reducing the cost of networking so that people Mm -hmm. use them more. And AWS in particular, I think, will be the one behind this, although I can't confirm that. They want to see switches in the enterprise data center that defray the cost of their outposts. You know, so if customers buy Amazon outpost racks to be delivered on site, they don't want to see, you know, million dollars worth of networking going in there. Why not just buy one of our white box switches and drop that in there sort of thing? Yeah, I get that. Although, but they're they're really positioning this for the edge as opposed to the data center. So mm, that that the to campus, me, yeah. yeah, that that to me reads differently. Like, uh, you know, putting it in a retail branch or putting it in uh, a cell tower or some other place at the edge as opposed to f- for the campus, which has different requirements. Yeah, so it's, it'll be interesting to see because you know you're going to need MLAG. You're not just going to have L3. It's going to be you're going to need a different set of features, but you need cheaper silicon because people need a lot of switches. Right. We believe, I believe that Cisco's SD access is a fine strategy, but it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's driving the price of campus networking up, probably by as much of a factor of between 30 to 100% more expensive in the campus. They are offering certain extra features, but if you just wanted basic connectivity, the price definitely gets up quite a bit. So there is a market there. You know, Cisco's leaving a lot of space underneath its product line for other people to come in, and this might be one where it does. And if they can get partnerships, uh, Delta is the OEM manufacturer that's listed on the consortium. So if Delta can produce some Marvel switch, you know, Marvel ASICs. Yeah in their switches and then bring them to market and Cumulus partners with Amazon to to do some support. Maybe there's a Cumulus option for the same products or, you know, maybe Dent gets to a certain point and Cumulus takes it. I don't know. We're just, I'm just speculating here. Yes. You know? <laughs> in the meantime, Cumulus gets some free coverage, you know, um, like they did with the HP one. Why wouldn't they put a person on? It's cheaper than uh, getting marketing programs going. Well, I'm sure it's great for Cumulus to be next to Amazon in those development meetings, talking, being being there. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's good for them. I, I just feel like uh, th- this seems to me it's not an organic community requirement. It's uh, supposed to serve someone else's long-term goals, probably Amazon. So uh, I feel like I'm mm. a little suspect about this project, but we'll see. We'll keep an eye on it and see what happens. Yeah, there's so many other nonces that have come and gone, failed. At the same time, I mean, you know, we talked about Peak 8 three or four months ago, and look what they've done with their campus strategy, and they're talking, you know, a fraction of the price of their competitors right. using the same technology, and they're, uh, uh, you know, it's it's definitely something to consider, so. Yeah. Yeah. So just to run down quickly, we've got Danos, we've got OpenSwitch, we've got SonicSci, we've got Open Network Linux, Linux, we've got ONS. There are probably others out there, not to mention commercially supported Linux versions like Cumulus and Pika 8, uh, not to mm. mention any number of low-cost cheap switches you can buy. So again, I, I'm not sure yeah. who, who who's really being served here. <laughs> it's hard to tell. We'll just have to keep an eye out, I guess. You know. Yes. All right. Mm. Okay, moving on. Uh, One of our sponsors today is Viavi Solutions. They are the network performance management leader, enabling IT teams to understand user experience with a patent-pending end-user experience score. They analyze hundreds of performance metrics with Viavi Observer to distill this information into a single, easy-to-understand score representing what actual end-users are experiencing. This quick insight provides a simple problem explanation and high-fidelity wire data forensics to speed problem resolution. Viavi helps network teams manage daily operations, mitigate performance and security risks, and solve issues fast. Viavi, delivering outcomes, not just more data. You can learn more at viavisolutions.com slash packetpushers. Okay, back to the news. Uh, do you remember how Broadcom bought Symantec back in 2019? I did not. <laughs> and in what is sure to be another forgettable transaction, Broadcom is now selling Symantec's cybersecurity services business to the consultancy giant Accenture. 
Yeah, which is exactly Accenture's business and not Broadcom's. I'm surprised they hung on to it for this long. It must have had some profit in it or must have had some good contracts. <clears throat> I think they needed uh, actually probably to wait for the transaction to close before they could sell. That, that may be mm. Did it only close recently? Yeah, I think oh. it closed in 2020, so <laughs> very recently. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think, you know, we know that Broadcom's really not interested in building a market or creating a market. It wants to buy um, companies for their mature businesses, and we believe, and the financial analysts that I read believe, that Broadcom's really looking for these acquisitions to get them cash flow positive. And so if they've got buy companies and they have products which have got a lot of headcount and a lot of overhead, and even if they might be profitable, that's not a business that Broadcom wants. So they tend to divest them. And that's what, you know, when they bought Brocade, they kept the fiber channel business and then threw away everything else, you know, mm. gave the Ethernet IP off to Extreme and, you know, sold off all the different pieces all over the place. And in some cases, you know, the management teams take the products. I think this is following a pretty consistent model from Broadcom, if you follow it. Accenture gets a bunch of uh, headcount for its managed services security business, which I didn't actually know that Accenture had a managed services security business, did you? <laughs> I did not. Uh, <laughs> to me, I think of accounting when I think of Accenture, not not security services. So, <laughs> so I did enjoy this piece of the press release and this is like wow this is really like bloviating big time becoming part of Accenture security is a tremendous opportunity for our clients and our cyber warriors around the globe good lord enabling us to fuse the unique capability just like oh my god wow. <laughs> so that's like whew, cyber warriors the marketing department had a good day on that one yeah Anyway, so uh, so the press release goes on to say that Cybermantic's uh, cybersecurity services business will be the latest in a series of acquisitions, including those of Deja Vu Security, iDefense, Magland, Redcore, Arismore, and FusionX, that demonstrate Accenture's security commitment to investing in an innovating advanced threat intelligence and cybersecurity solutions. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a nightmare. Accenture is trying to build a security business by buying lots of other people's security businesses and then smashing them all together. Exactly. That. That does not sound like a fun place to be, does it? It does not. You know, I have to, back in the day uh, covering Symantec, I thought they had put together a, a decent managed security services team, probably through some acquisitions themselves. So I think they probably bought a, a respectable and good unit. But I, I just, uh, Accenture is not the place I would go if I was looking for managed security. No, but I'll bet you it's got <laughs> every single possible audit certification and quality control process that anyone That's has ever sent. That's a good point. Yes. Yes. Get that and, all you in know, one package. Yes. And then Accenture can be standing there at the CIO or the board level going, we've got the, we've got a security package that, you know, and it's got all the certifications. I can see how easily it would be for them to win that business. Absolutely. So, Check these boxes and you're good to go. Yeah, good to go. So, but I would imagine being on the ground there when they're smashing six different companies, one, two, three, so, you know, together. And uh, in 2019, Accenture invested nearly $1.2 billion on 33 acquisitions to acquire critical skills and capabilities. Wow. And that's like, wow, that is a lot of people to get realigned and get on board with the new plan. And, you know, I'm not so sure that I'd want to be there, but okay. Uh, Good luck for customers who've got Symantec cybersecurity services business. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? And uh, welcome to Accenture. I'm sure it's going to get better. Oh, so mean. <laughs> so mean. Uh, just to wrap this up, Accenture is going to get six security operation centers, and they're going to offer threat intelligence monitoring and incident response. Financial details of this transaction were not disclosed. 
Uh, speaking of acquisitions, F5 Networks is acquiring a company called Shape Security for $1 billion. Shape specializes in detecting fraud and abuse of customer accounts for banks, retailers, and other entities. Uh, it ticks all of the marketing boxes. It's got AI, ML, and cloud-based analytics. Ding, ding, ding. There's a trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I'm sure that F5 would have expected its shareholders to be much happier than they uh, than they did. Shareholders immediately mark the share price down by 5%. Um, it, strategically, it makes sense. Uh, F5 uh, has bought a couple of different companies, and obviously the Nginx to get into software or to help turn the company away from flogging hardware as a living and get into the software. Uh, more on that about the Nginx Russian thing in a minute. Yep. And obviously, buying Shape Security for application security and fraud prevention solutions is a good move because your load balancer is often sitting between you and the internet and adding some you know, fraud prevention and application security is a natural adjunct. So they can now sell that as fries with that, with the F5 uh, load balancers, with the LTMs and you know so forth. And so it does move F5 more into the security space. Of course, that bumps them directly into Palo Alto and Fortinet and Cisco Security, which is... Uh, a different business. They they obviously have been alone. They're not used to competing on their uh, against other people. So that's going to be a difficult turnaround for them. Um, but I think the the financial analysts indicated that they think F5 overpaid. Shape was actually valued to get to a billion dollars. It was valued at fourteen point three times earnings. So to put that another way, Shape was making just sixty million a year in sales which makes it a tiny, tiny, weeny security company. And the acquisition won't add any cash to the F5's bottom line for two to three years, they said, and will probably only grow to $90 million in year one and $120 million in year two. So F5's taking on $400 million in debt to, the, to buy this business unit, and that will reduce the profitability of the company enough to impact the share price, which promptly fell 5%. So, yes, good tactical move, but the market thinks they overpaid. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good move. Gets them into an adjacent space that makes sense for application security. But yeah, wow, taking on $400 million and paying a billion dollars for this company. I wonder if there were other bidders there driving up the price just to kind of stick it to F5, because that's a lot to pay uh, 14 times earnings. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're running out of threat intelligence companies and fraud prevention companies to buy at this point. Mm. F5's moved very late here. Everybody else has rushed off to buy companies in this space. And I think F5 might have been left with what was around, not, you know, they had to take what they could take, not mm -hmm. take the one that, you know, find the best price sort of thing. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's fair speculation or not, but it certainly feels like it. Yeah, based on what the – I don't know. It's Yeah, $400 million in debt to buy. Anyway. Well, it feels like we've been talking about firewall companies buying threat prevention, threat intelligence, application security for two years now. Yes. So – this is not a company at the head of the curve. This is not innovation. This is, damn it, we have to catch up. That's what it feels like to me anyway. I guess, although the, the, the fraud prevention and detection space seems a little bit outside of typical threat intelligence, which is more about just looking at cyber activities going on and, and trying to provide some insight on how it may affect your business. This is very specific uh, business. So, uh, but, but again, it just the way this deal came together strikes me as slightly unusual. But it, it, mm. in the long term, it may pay off, and F5 is certainly making that bet. And they announced it like two days before Christmas, which is... <laughs> oh, maybe that's not a good sign. <laughs> no, which is a little suspect, but okay, yeah. Okay. 
a little tea leaf reading there. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, slightly tangential to F five, we talked at the end of last year about how Russian police raided the Russian offices of Nginx on behalf of an ISP that said Nginx had violated copyright law. Uh, several days after the raid, the ISP in question said that it will instead pursue civil rather than criminal charges, and critics are saying this just looks like a money grab. <laughs> Which is what I said. I thought it was a high level shakedown. Yeah. From yeah, for some cash, you know, basically use the Russian legal system to set up an ownership claim, make trouble for everyone, and then rate, wait for a settlement offer from a rich Western company, which is in this case F5 Networks. There was a substantial reaction, so it's not 100% clear, very messy sort of an environment, but it looks as if enough people have sort of pointed fingers that the claim isn't going to stand up and that's whatever. Yeah, apparently a lot of customers of this Russian ISP actually protested uh, to the mm. ISP saying, hey, we don't like the way what you're doing here and threatened to take their business away. And so the ISP backed off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's just very, very odd. It, it, like the whole thing's just odd. And at the time last week, I, I speculated that given the change in geopolo geopolitics, I'm wondering if buying a Russian technology could cause problems later if customers realize that some amount of development comes from Russian employees. F5 says it certainly does not. We got a hold of the letter, F5 letters to customers, and it says, and I quote, promptly following the event, we took measures to ensure that the security of our master software builds for Nginx, Nginx Plus, Nginx WAF, and Nginx Unit, all of which are stored on servers outside of Russia. No other products are developed within Russia. F5 remains committed to innovating with Nginx, da 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 da, da and we will continue to provide the basic car support. I'm I'm much more of the camp that it doesn't matter where the data is located. That's a furphy. It's who's got access to it. Mm -hmm. And the point is, is that it would seem that a lot of the development for Nginx products is done in Russia. The data might be stored outside of Russia, so you could still draw a bow and say. There is some concern of Russian influence on the Nginx software. If that's something that affects you and your business, then you might want to take that into consideration. Yeah. Right. Difficult to separate uh, that access issue. Yes, it is. It is. And, you know, you might want to take it up with F5 to get more guarantees or to, to reconsider. I'd really, it doesn't matter if your data is located in, you know, under my desk. If it's accessible to somebody on the internet, that's. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, hundreds of employees at a small telemarketing company in Arkansas aren't sure they have a job as the company they worked for was hit by ransomware. The company had to suspend operations just before Christmas to try to recover from the attack, and it's not clear if the organization is back up and running. Uh, a year or two ago, I used to always make fun of these security events. You know, people got breached and nobody was hurt. You know, everybody would run around going thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, and it'd be fine. But I think ransomware has really changed the game here. It's really changed the outcomes from a security breach. People get in. They take control and then they wipe out your data. They encrypt your data. In this case, the reporting was fairly clear that this company, that their headline was rather dramatic, but the telemarketing firm is still in business. Their website is still up. So um, I suspect that some part of their business got hammered and they let a bunch of people go around their call center while they attempted to recover the call center, I think. But I think the point here is that security is different now because ransomware can take your organization down. I do remember... Uh, years ago, I remember working with companies and their accounting systems would crash mm -hmm. and we would find out that their backups weren't working and they were responsible for their backups. Right. And we'd be called in, you know, Carl, you've got to help us. You've got to, you know, and we'd just be sitting there looking at a pile of tapes with just nothing on it. And uh, and those companies would quite often go out of business because they've lost all of their debtors. They, you know, all the people that they have to collect money from, um, they've lost. All the people who, they've, who they have to pay are still waiting for their money and they'll resend their invoices. But if you've lost 
um, your customer invoices, then you're out of business. And uh, so it is a change. Yeah, the threat post story does cite two companies that they know of that actually went out of business because of ransomware attacks that encrypted critical data that they just couldn't recover, and so they had to shut down the organization. Uh, yeah, ransomware, I think, is different because it hits companies, especially small ones, in two of the most difficult disciplines, security and disaster recovery. If, if you don't have good backup and DR uh, disciplines in place, essentially you're hosed. Yep. Pretty much, <laughs> and and often those smaller companies haven't done you know enough work or don't spend a lot of money on their IT, and there really is no way out. So, yeah, anyway. I, I feel bad for these small organizations because obviously you do need to have proper security controls. But with security, you can spend so much money and time, and you're never, if you're a small organization, not sure of the value you're getting. And just running day to day operations as a small biz can be tough. So, <laughs> then being hit by ransomware on top of it, I, I do have a little sympathy for these organizations. Yeah, I'm with you. Right so effectively, it's me saying whatever I said two years ago, I've changed my mind. Right. So it's really for 2020. Security does matter. Security does matter for 2020. I think ransomware's changed the outcomes, and so you, don't worry about a breach, data breach. It's like <laughs> chance for free marketing, but for ransomware, oh, okay, now that's different. Uh, yes, I that's my that. weaseling my way out of it. How's that? <laughs> that work? That's, you can't Am I going to get away with that? No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you've changed your opinion. Let's move on. Yes. <laughs> All right, a quick break to tell you about our other sponsor, Thousand Eyes. They help organizations deliver business-critical service by providing performance visibility and actionable intelligence from every user over any network to every app, including Office 365 and Salesforce. They've got cloud agents, enterprise agents, and endpoint agents to gather unique insights on network behavior, topologies, and how they affect application performance. With Thousand Eyes, you can generate performance data through active monitoring techniques from global vantage points. You can quickly pinpoint the root cause of device faults, congestion, DDoS attacks, hijacks, route leaks, and more. You can share events, dashboards, metrics, and visualizations with your vendors and customers to collaborate on resolving problems and get it done faster. And here's a special offer for Packet Pushers listeners. You can sign up for a free account at thousandeyes.com slash packetpushers. And while you're there, get yourself a free Thousand Eyes t-shirt. Okay, back to the news. Uh, Cisco, you, you picked up the story about Cisco. There's a blog about how they're touting uh, SD access, S ACI, and SD WAN integration, multi domain mm. integration, and also some uh, corporate structural news. Yeah, so there's three different blog posts going on here. One is referring to the organizational change. It talks about the during the end of 2019, Cisco leadership combined several business units under one leader to create the intent-based networking group. Ah. So this is a real change. So it says here, renewed focus on creating deep multi-domain integrations across wireless, wired, data center, cloud, and SD-WAN edge. So this is a convergence of all of the technologies there into a single business unit. Now, part of this is to do with the changes that business has to go through. Cisco has to said to customers, we are going to be able to maintain our share price by cutting costs. And so they have to lean out the business. And one way to do that is to, you know, execute a few cut product lines and to start realigning people into business units so you don't have a lot of job duplication like you do in the different business units today. So that's been coming for a while. Uh, they're talking about uh, the blog post particularly calls out uniting the campus and the branch with cloud resources using SD-WAN. So in the last half of last year, I started talking about SD-WAN will eventually extend to take over the campus and the branch networks. Uh, Cisco, I think, is going to come from the branch, from the campus into the SD-WAN. doesn't matter. The answer is all of those WAN and campus networks are all going to merge into a single thing. Cisco wants to talk about using augmenting NetOps skills with AI and machine reasoning. I'm not too sure about the AI, but I'll go with the machine reasoning, in other words, automation. 
and they also want to empower IT with an architecture for access control. Now, this makes very good sense. One of the big topics for campus for some, for many people, is how do they apply access control and control users connecting to the network? Obviously, security is a big issue for, for the reasons that we've talked about. And so Cisco is certainly taking its products up market with the, with the access control story. And you're going to see a lot more of that. A big part of the SD access and the intent based is the authentication and the network access control and all that sort of stuff. So it makes sense to me so far, doesn't it, to you? It makes sense in that in terms of wanting to contain customers and wrap them into a nice big Cisco package, having a unified identity and access hmm. management solution for data center, campus, and WAN or SD-WAN, remote access edge, totally makes sense. Can they actually pull it off? It seems like a really hard problem. Yeah. Well, I think up until now, Cisco has reflected its internal business has been aligned in the way that customers work. So they've had a site, you know, customers are siloed campus, data center, storage right. networking, you know. And so Cisco had a silo for each one of those business units. And it made sense then because that's, you know, that product silo would make products for that customer silo and that worked because the people that they were talking, and to some extent Cisco reflected what customers are doing. And I think going forward that's going to change. We're going to see all of those converge. Cisco now finds itself under financial pressure to cut costs to maintain its profit margin. And so the easiest thing is to just start merging these things together. And that's been going on for some time, pretty steadily over the last two years. You know, we saw the NCEMI business unit aggregated with the enterprise unit, and now they're aggregating the campus and the wireless and all that sort of stuff together. So I think this makes sense in the sense that it also reflects where customers are going to. So customers are no longer seeing those things as separate. And as SDN comes along, it starts to munge all those together. Like, you know, why is your wireless separate from your wired? It should all be one, you know, in the campus. And that's where we're headed. It feels like progress in that sense. And I think also we need to remember that Arista and Juniper are both aggressively moving into the campus. The SD-WAN market is wide open. Cisco hasn't yet dominated that market. Obviously, they're, they're, they are a leading player in that space because of their incumbent position, but they haven't yet dominated that market. And then certainly technologically, technologically and feature-wise, they're, they're not at the front forefront of the market. They're not making the SD-WAN market. They're following along in the wake of other players, in my view. Yes. So having a unified approach would be very good for customers i think if it's like it's going to be a long journey for them to to unify these products but it's certainly going to be a good strategy for those customers who want to be captured in a multi-dimensional product strategy so if you're the sort of person or your organization that says i just want to have one one hand to shake or one throat to choke or one butt to kick choose your choose your metaphor <laughs> if you want everything from cisco you should be able to say that, you know there's one of everything in that portfolio strategy and Cisco's going to ratify the hardware, shrink the hardware portfolio a lot, put more emphasis on the software to deliver the, deliver the differentiation. That, and that makes sense. Yeah, I agree it makes sense. I think it's bold and potentially risky calling this group the intent-based networking group. Uh, intent-based right now is the flavor du jour, but who knows where it's going to go and whether it has legs. So that's a bold bet <laughs> on you know picking a fashion and calling, it the, calling this group intent-based networking. Uh, it's also not clear to me when they say we're going to incorporate campus SD-WAN and ACI, which SD-WAN they mean. Is that Viptela? Does it also include Meraki? Where does Meraki sit in this whole integrating wireless and wired? They've got so many essentially competing products in this space that, again, wrapping it all together. I, I love the idea of having a centralized, uniform identity and access management layer. It doesn't matter where the user or the mm. application is coming in to identify it and apply policy to it and have that policy travel with it. Great idea conceptually, really hard to pull off, especially 
considering all of the moving parts and pieces. If you start to peel back the layers on SD access by itself, there's so many pieces underneath there. Uh, the switches, yeah. ICE, uh, all, all the list protocol going on underneath, uh, a bunch of other uh, software and components. So yeah, the, the, great idea. Let's let uh, execution is going to take some time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, and I think Cisco's got a long way to go and go through that transition. And um, customers will um, may have to go share that pain as Cisco goes through that transition. Certainly my experience of companies as they transition from somewhere to somewhere else is customers usually share the pain, in uh, especially with Cisco, as it goes through its changes. I mean, for example, its software licensing is a mess, an absolute mess. And that is absolutely reflects the transition from there to there, and they don't know how to charge for it and how much is the software worth. And so they put stuff in the software licensing that just doesn't make any sense, and then the business unit changes, and so the software licensing doesn't reflect, you know. So it's, it's just it is going to be bad, I think, in that sense. It's going to be difficult. Uh, it makes me curious to see. We've talked about how VMware talking about how Cisco is facing new competition. They've got NSX in the data center. They've got VeloCloud NSX for the SD WAN. What if they're going to try to get into campus as well? What that play might be. Also curious to see what Arista may do in terms of having an SD WAN strategy if it wants to get there now that it's going from data center to campus. So lots of interesting things for 2020. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch Cisco transform from what it was to where it's going. You know, Chuck's very as a very slow mover. I don't think Chuck Robbins is shaking Cisco up or you know changing the game or innovating in any ways. He's a very, my sense of it is very methodical, step by step. You know, got a playbook and he knows where he's going to be, um, and how to get there. And it's just going to plod steadily through the transitions one after the other, get them better down, and then take the next step. So I don't, you know, we won't see a, a, a new Cisco suddenly a burst onto the scene. You know, um, that's just not the way it works. Right. Yeah. A, a, a lot of ships to turn in one direction. But we'll keep an eye on this. That's interesting to see how this is going to develop. Uh, sticking with Cisco, back in November 2019, the company sued three former employees for misappropriating trade secrets and taking them to a competitor. Then in late December, Cisco posted a public blog to announce that it's amended the suit to now include Poly. Poly is the corporate entity for Polycom and Plantronics, saying that Poly is protecting at least one of those employees uh, and now targeting Poly as part of this suit. Yeah, I, I'm not too worried about the suit here, although the the blog post reads like a bit of a, ooh, why are you not behaving like good people, you know? It's, it's, a lot, it's a taking lot of, a very, we're, we're wounded, we're wounded and shocked that this behavior goes on. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's a bit of a, and it looks like a bit of legal argy-bargy to try and call them out so that yes. they come to the bargaining table. And the, the point here is that people have been appropriating data from Cisco and walking out the door according to what I know, for a very long period of time, and maybe Cisco's gotten a little tired of it. But that's okay. That's, you know, that's their thing. I think in this case, it's historically it was very unusual for Cisco to even have legal actions with people and then even much more unusual for them to discuss legal actions in public. Mm -hmm. But recently we saw the Ariska case get a, a series of public statements and then we've had a number of the legal um, blog posts come out about the cases that Cisco are conducting. And um, I'm beginning to wonder that their lawyers maybe just like to blog or not. Do you think? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I need to blog. Got to get it out. Yeah, building a personal brand or something, do you think? I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting to note that this is a transition from Cisco to, A, conduct legal cases and to do some part of that in public. 
you know, not just inside of the court system in public, but actually on its blog to call attention to the legal cases that it's doing. In this case, it's definitely a signal to employees to say, don't steal the data when you walk out the door. <laughs> sure, it's certainly a public signal to employees, yes, that if you're walking out the door, we're going to be looking at you. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, a little public pressure never hurts. Maybe they are hoping they could spook an investor or two in Polly to maybe push Polly to settle because this looks ugly for everybody. It never hurts mm. to throw a little shade at a competitor. <laughs> So, and the other thing is, you say it's argy bargy. People, employees are constantly moving between these organizations. So, this must be going on all the time. So, yeah, it is interesting that they would drag this out into the public. But, yeah, like I said, a little public pressure maybe doesn't hurt. <laughs> just odd. Uh, I just thought this is just something to call out to people's attention. It's part of the new Cisco. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, our last story for the show. Uh, in 2019, we reported about the potential sale of the .org domain to a for-profit private equity firm. That sale was put on hold after ICANN requested more details from the organization that currently runs .org that was going to sell it. Uh, a response is inspected in January, but there's a good story in the register saying that ICANN isn't actually being very transparent about its request for transparency. There's a lot of... Um... There's a lot of stuff going on here, and there's a lot of blog posts going, he says, she said, and na 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 and you stink, and, you know, that sort of stuff. And I've kind of not put many articles on the network break about this because nothing's really getting done. There's just a lot of sort of um, name-calling going on. Mm -hmm. But it certainly appears that there's something less than excellent being done here. There's something not right. <laughs> less than excellence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It turns out that the sale was actually for a billion dollars, over a billion dollars, sold the .org domain name registry to a private equity-funded company called Ethos. However, the Ethos is actually being run by people who have very questionable links to ICANN. In other words, they are actually in the ICANN or closely associated with the people involved. Uh, and then when the community started calling out the people in ICANN who made the decision to sell the .org registry, they just sort of said, you have no part to play in this. Get out of my face. That it's all done. Get away. Just leave me alone. Mm -hmm. And it was all at that, that point. It started to say like, "There's something going on here. This sounds like a sounds like something crooked's happening. Yeah. It doesn't feel ethical. It, the, a lot of the process was bypassed. The deal was just done, and there was no consultation to any of the groups associated with the ICANN to say this is what we're doing. And it should have been done in the open because the original intention of the .org was that it's for the people, by the people. Yeah, absolutely. And done it. So, not to be sold uh, off to private equity for a billion dollars. Yeah. And now there are counter offers coming in because people have done it. And apparently the people coming in with the counter offers are actually even dodgier than the people in Ethos. So, <laughs> <Boy>. <laughs> you know, and it, so there's all sorts of weird things going on here. The people <laughs> at the end of the day, the DNS registry community is very insular often uh, staff with people who are pretty much on the dodgy side of behavior, like, you know, porn domains and domain squatters and, you know, speculative DNS domain registrations. A lot of them are pretty dodgy people who don't, you know, don't know what an honest business looks like. And uh, so, give, you know, and when you start talking about a billion dollars and dodgy people and deals being done without recourse to people around you, you've got a recipe for a fairly messy thing. Yes. That's exactly what's paying out. They really should have done a better job. If these people are above board, then ICANN should stand up and say, here's our process, here's the transparency, here's what we did, here's why we did it. Tell us where we went wrong. Here are protections that are going to be in place for .org to still be a community resource. Yeah, the whole thing just smacks of uh, distaste. 
Yes, cronyism. Yeah, or, you know, yeah. a whole bunch of things. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people getting their pockets lined, and there's kickbacks all over the place. Nobody that nobody can prove because all this data is being, you know. So for for now, the .org domain transfer is going through a lot of pushback inside of the community itself, and I think the people inside of ICANN are going to have to have a good hard look at themselves and decide, you know, they are a commercial entity and have a lot of responsibilities commercially to be responsible. They can't just treat it like a bunch of amateur volunteers anymore. It needs to right. grow up, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Check out the register article. It's pretty good. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, but that does wrap up our first episode for 2020. Greg, where can folks find you online? Uh, you can find me uh, twittering away on at Ethereal Mind. And I've also got some blog posts on Packet Pushes and some more content heading out onto our Ignition membership site. That's right. And just uh, if you're not familiar with Ignition, it's our subscription site, 99 bucks a year. We just released a new course, Ansible for Networking. We'll have another course coming up. Uh, Greg's written a couple of white papers. There's more stuff up there. We've got a series on uh, automation, uh, a white paper series. So check it out. Uh, and if you want to subscribe, 99 bucks a year. Uh, I'm Drew Conry Murray. I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM and blogging at packetpushers.net. Thank you to our sponsors, Viavi Solutions and Thousand Eyes. And thank you, of course, for joining us for another episode. If you like the show, tell your friends, leave a recommendation on Apple podcast or share a link. Uh, thanks for listening. Welcome to Tech Bytes, a 15-minute podcast that gives you a quick but comprehensive look at products and technologies in the real world. Our sponsor today is Silverpeak, and we're talking with Cushman & Wakefield, a global real estate services firm that uses an SD-WAN from Silverpeak. Our guest is Chris Butcher. He is platform architect for Global Networks Cloud and Perimeter Security. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Can you give us a quick background on what Cushman & Wakefield does? Yeah, no problem at all. So, uh, Cushman & Wakefield, we basically look after uh, property real estate uh, for lots of organizations. Uh, and we basically uh, factor in all forms of uh, client property uh, assets, uh, looking after their future property investments, uh, as well as obviously looking at their current property portfolios. And we can also manage all the facilities, as well as also do office design as well. So we basically cover all elements of uh, corporate real estate. Okay. And it sounds like you're a global business? Uh, yes, we are. We're basically uh, spread over 70 countries uh, with about 400 offices um, with a uh, profit of 8.2 billion in uh, 2018. Wow. Okay. It sounds like you also have a lot of mo like offices that come and go. Because you're in real estate, you're owning a property, moving into a property, moving out of a property. So there's a lot of change going on in the in your in the way your office offices work. I think. Uh, yes, definitely. Um, so, obviously, uh, we, we are an organization which is basically built out of three primary organizations um, and went through some uh, major mergers uh, within the last two years. Um, so, with that in mind, we've done a lot of office consolidation. Uh, it's currently evolving um, quite dramatically. Obviously, yeah. we have staff that are based in some of our client offices as well, where we manage yeah. their facilities. So there's a lot of flexibility and lots of frequent changes that need to be done. Huh. So obviously we need to be able to adapt from yeah. a, a technology that, point of view. That's what struck me about your business is that um, it's not a static company. It's not like a company goes and sets up a factory and then lives there for the next 20 years. You'd be into a building, out of a building. You'd be evaluating, a, a, you know, setting up an office, tearing down an office. You'd have a lot of mobility going on, a lot of change. And I know that Cushman and Wakefield has had a number of mergers and demergers and business units changing around. So you'd have a lot of a WAN, which is very fluid, I imagine. 
Yes, definitely. Uh, and obviously what we needed is we needed technology as well that we can actually leverage within organizations that means that we can very quickly spin up organizations and also integrate some of the uh, M&As that we're doing as well. Uh, there's been lots of acquisitions over the last few years. So obviously as when we're doing on a new organization, uh, we very quickly need to integrate them into the business. Um, and obviously from a technology point of view, we need to make sure that we have solutions that can enable us to do that and get the staff working as one organization very quickly. So what are some of the, the key applications or services that you're using? Um, so predominantly, uh, since our merger, we've obviously done lots of application uh, rationalization as well. Yeah. Um, so we very much are focusing on sort of a cloud-first strategy. Um, but obviously, there are key critical systems uh, that operate across our legacy WAN. So we obviously have lots of legacy um, uh, finance applications, uh-huh. um, and as well as some of our own bespoke created applications uh, that actually look after our client portfolios. So obviously, we do lots of analytics, um, and we have lots of platforms there that could be available within our corporate data centers. But we also are leveraging platform as a service as well. So one of the key things from a network point of view is we need to be able to adapt and provide uh, fast uh, application visibility to our users uh, to those cloud platforms, um, and obviously egress as quickly as possible into those backbone networks for those providers. So you're referring there to saying you've got stuff in the public cloud and you're being moving to the public cloud as a strategy. Yeah. You've also got the platforms as a service, so you've got the various SaaS options like Office 365 and email and stuff like that. So you want to break out to the internet as quickly as possible, and but you still got your, uh, you call them legacy, I like to call them legendary because you always look back and think of them as being greater than they actually are. But, you know, they're there and they're real and they're things that you have, you know. Um, and so you've really got to support all of that while your actual remote sites or your branch sites are just moving around all the time. Yes, definitely. Um, and obviously, it's it's making sure that we can obviously prioritize and optimize those applications as well, especially for the ones, as you said, those legacy applications. Um, we need to make sure those are highly available from anywhere within the globe. And some of those could be hosted within the Americas region and obviously are leveraged uh, from some of the APAC uh, countries as well. So. so having to balance both legacy or legendary applications, but you also said the organization is going with a cloud-first strategy. Did that mean you had to rethink how you were doing the WAN? Oh, most definitely. Um, so from that point of view, it, it no longer became a point of backhauling all traffic through to the data center and then egressing there, which is the old legacy strategy for MPLS. What we had to do is obviously rethink how we did that and make sure that we could obviously provide ourselves uh, a kind of, should we say, hub and spoke design for our, um, our new WAN network. But what we could do is we could obviously make sure that from the branch office for those SaaS or PaaS applications, we could obviously egress those locally. And a lot of those, we're using most of the uh, well-known cloud uh, SaaS or uh, past providers um, to provide access to those applications. But also, we need to make sure that we can backhaul all that traffic back via the data centers and then back across our uh, internal SD-WAN. So in essence, what we created was like a mesh network within our region. And then obviously, any of the traffic that then needed to um, traverse down across the global network, that would then be linked across our eight global data centers. Is that a scaling issue or an operational issue or a limitation of the hardware itself? Is it is that just the way you wanted to design it for some reason? The reason we what we wanted to try to do is obviously make sure that with a lot of our users uh, with the merger, 
you have uh, different staff that would move to different offices. So the idea being is as and when we brought organizations on board, we wanted to make sure that they could immediately start working as Cushman and Wakefield and therefore have access to all of the application sets that any other opposing user would have or existing user. Right. So on that basis, it was creating that mesh network. So no matter what office they go to within the region, they can access those critical core applications, those, as you mm. say, legendary ones. Yeah. But also, <laughs> then egressing out over the internet for those other SaaS uh, uh, platforms, the Office 365s and things like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the local breakout is a real transformation, like the SD-WAN local breakout. I mean, we've always been possible in theory, to do local breakout, but it meant that at each branch, when the old days of a router, you basically had to put a proxy server or you had to have firewall rules and you were forever futzing with it, whereas in the SD-WAN stuff, you can just say, you know, let Office 365 go straight out to the internet and boom, it's done. That's a massive change, I think. Oh, definitely. Um, And also, it's meant that we can actually get into the providers' networks quicker. So one of the things that we found was in certain regions, you had slower performance to some of those SaaS applications. And part of that being is if you look at um, how the network used to perform when it was MPLS, you may have a user in India that's suddenly connecting back to a data center in Hong Kong, and then Mm. from there, egressing out to the internet. Now we can actually get them straight into Microsoft's backbone network quicker and mm. making sure we use uh, location-based DNS to make sure that we actually provide the IP addresses back to those users for the nearest entry point to the network. And on top of that, what we've then done is obviously scaled upwards to make sure that we can leverage uh, the likes of Zscan, um, and we can also integrate right. there as well to have cloud firewalls to make sure that we don't actually compromise our security. So we have a, lo- a number of Silver Peak people who we talk to on the show, customers, and they're using Zscaler then to do the scanning. So your, even though mm. the traffic is going out to the internet, it's still being logged, inspected, and analyzed and authenticated, I think, to some level by choosing Zscaler. There's different levels of service inside of Zscaler, isn't there? Yes, there is. Um, but obviously, what we've made sure is that we have a consistent security posture across the globe. And no matter where you are, we can obviously implement with the likes of Civil Peak and Zscaler a follow the user security model. And that's the one thing mm. that we're trying to focus on very much to ensure that we have a smooth um, experience for users, no matter whether they're working from home, that's, such as myself that's, today, or within the <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very interesting point. What you're saying there is you've now actually got a consistent security strategy, whether you're in, you know, regional Australia or in the UK, you know, in London where the head office is in the policy. Because quite often in the rural areas or the, the far-flung areas of these large WANs, the security policy would get weaker and weaker the further you went away from the core. Definitely. And if you look at where you're uh, in situations such as Cushman, where we've got lots of different organizations, each one had their own individual strategy. By us running at SG-WAN, what we've been able to do is basically look at, well, we don't matter what you've been doing in the past, we can implement a new solution and roll it out to you smoothly to make sure that there is a consistent approach across the board, um, as well as uh, enable us to integrate these organizations where there may have been huge number of IP conflicts, we can literally stage up a brand new network very quickly and simply by leveraging mm. the virtual appliance of Silverpeak um, and then getting that spun out very quickly and bring them into the new standards. So, uh, as we've mentioned several times when we're talking about SD-WAN, there are probably a million vendors right now. How was it that you came to decide on Silverpeak? Um, 
When we were first looking at obviously SG-WAN, SG-WAN was still a very new term. It was still very new technology out there. And we wanted to make sure that obviously we looked at a number of the vendors that were there, uh, and some of them were still very new to the market. And therefore, we wanted to make sure we went with a, a proven vendor uh, that could basically fulfill all the requirements that we had at that time to make sure that we could comply with our um, uh, local internet breakout policies and also provide a good level of consistency so that we could control the direction of the traffic. Um, we were already using Silverpeak at the time for some WAN optimization, um, so it actually fit in very nicely with their SD-WAN strategy as well. So That probably would have reduced the barrier to entry. You would have known them. They probably mm -hmm. were banging on your door trying to tell you about SD-WAN to a larger extent as well, but you also had the comfort that you knew it was good that it was a yeah. good partner for your business. Yeah, and it was a good, stable platform as well. Uh, and that's part of the reason why we chose to go down that line. So Absolutely. And also, you know, being able to do things like service chaining with Zscaler, um, it sounds like they're able to support your cloud breakout, which is really key. Um, so with 70 locations around the world, what is the deployment of the Edge Connects like? Where are you in that, that rollout? Um, so we've actually got uh, seven countries we're in globally, uh, but we're actually based out in about 400 offices. Mm, okay. Um, <laughs> so quite quite a large scale deployment there. Um, we've basically rolled out our, our Silver Peak SD-WAN across all of the Americas, uh, all of EMEA, um, and we've been making huge inroads within APAC. Um, so. I think part of the thing that obviously always keeps things a little slower on your deployment model is that retirement of that legacy MPLS and getting out of those legacy contracts. Mm -hmm. um, but we're moving very quickly now, and obviously are, we're going very fast-paced into running out to Australia. So it hasn't been a big bang. You haven't had to stop everything to roll this out. It's just been gradual, piece by piece, site by site. There's been no disruption to business operations other than, you know, the site switching from one way of doing things to another. But, you know, there wasn't any outages or failures or... No, not really at all. Um, we actually went quite fast-paced for the first year. So within the first 12 months, we pretty much rolled out to all of the Americas and all of EMEA. Um, wow. So that was very fast-paced. But we were very lucky that we uh, coincided a lot of that with our tech refresh strategy as well. So we were refreshing all the technology in the branch and at the same time doing our SG-WAN turn-ups. Um, and then, obviously, we've moved into some of the Australian market as well, where we were obviously uh, part of our merger of Cushman & Wakefield and DTZ. We also separated from a company called GDL, and that's part of the reason it was slightly slower in Australia. Um, but obviously, that's now in full traction at the moment and was moving very quickly last year, and we're hoping to finish it off this year. You've mentioned MPLS a couple of times. Uh, are you... Planning on moving entirely off MPLS or having sort of a, a broadband plus MPLS strategy? Um, so we've gone for dual internet um, pretty much across the board. So there is no uh, MPLS within branch offices that is all being completely retired. <laughs> the only MPLS we have at the moment is within our inner data center ring. Uh, and that's purely where, uh, within some countries, obviously the internet may not be as fast as we'd like it to. And obviously, we don't want to rely on some of that critical traffic going into the data centers. But what we may look at is other technologies and actually building an inner eBGP ring between those data centers for that inter-regional communication. And that's one of the things we're looking at at the moment. But again, we may look at some point-to-point -point links or things like that for that. So technology. you would tell people to just internet everything, even for your legendary applications, um, where, where you know, you'd mentioned at the start that quality of service and prioritization was important. Most people would say MPLS is needed. I would say 
you know, my experience has been that most people just find they start with MPLS and then switch to broadband or internet over time. Is that your experience? So we, when we first pushed this through, we had primary MPLS and secondary internet. And as we were actually going through doing the testing, we realized that from the internet side, where obviously we're using Silverpeak and part of their uh, policy sets to make sure that the links are working exactly as we'd like them to, we're doing a bit of that WAN optimization on top. We're actually finding the performance wasn't too bad. And when you actually roll out to dual internet, then again, you're constantly monitoring those links. You're constantly monitoring that activity to make sure that you can pass the traffic over the best possible link and passing over those SD-WAN network overlays. Did you save a lot of money that way? Uh, almost definitely. Uh, that was uh, <laughs> one of the things, uh, obviously, that was a big driver for us as well. Uh, yeah. If you look at a lot of those MPLS providers, in some countries, that can be very expensive. Obviously, yeah, we can leverage more lower-cost internet lines and provide the same, if not higher, quality service. But what about also if you're using something like Zscaler that presumably means you don't have to have firewalls at every branch. Do you get cost savings there? Oh, yes. So, again, we were running with another uh, leading uh, firewall vendor, uh, and we were running out virtual appliances there. And we were actually finding that sometimes they had hardware issues as well uh, with some of the VMware side. So, from that side, we actually were unable to reduce some of the operational issues that were happening in branches obviously just doing uh, GRE tunnels from the Silver Peaks up into Zscaler. Hmm. And again, we've improved the performance by doing so. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about performance? Are you hearing either from end users or customers about, do they notice either bad or good? Uh, I think people have definitely noticed significant improvements uh, where we have rolled out the SG-WAN side and doing a lot of that WAN optimization on top. So obviously uh, from our side, we have bought um, from a Silver Peak perspective, uh, the Silver Peak Standard Plus and Boost Licensing model. So that means that we can actually do that optimization on top. So in some of the countries where you may have slightly worse uh, performing uh, internet links, we can obviously make sure we can optimize that traffic across and provide a better level of service than they would have previously via a legacy VPN, like an IPsec tunnel. We can actually improve that performance uh, compared to how it used to be. Right. You so mentioned that, that Silverpeak gives you the option to add on. I think they, they call it Boost, which is essentially WAN optimization uh, as a software yeah. element attached to your SD-WAN. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. It basically means that we add in uh, a 10% contingency on what the internet line is to make sure that we have that available to optimize those applications. And as you said, for those legendary applications, we obviously <laughs> need to make sure that we can provide the, the fastest possible service we can for those. Um, yeah. And that's definitely been an improvement with one of the critical finance apps that's used via, uh, I believe, Japan back to the Americas. Mm. <laughs> so I just love the fact that you've replaced MPLS with broadband. You've actually mm -hmm. made application performance improved, and you've mm -hmm. saved a substantial watch. Here in the notes, you're talking a seven-figure number of savings in WAN costs. Easily, easily, Easy. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think you could be probably looking at six figures for some of our sites, um, especially some Alone. of the ones in the Americas, yeah. yes. <laughs> so, yeah, we've made significant cost savings. And you've probably got secondary that. cost savings by just ditching the firewalls as well, although Zscaler is not cheap, must be said. Yeah. Yeah, if you look at it, we've got cost savings there again from the VMware side from not using the virtual firewalls there. Mm, uh, yeah. The additional resources and things like that from our, um, our UCS appliances that we have. So there are cost savings ongoing, as well as obviously the cost saving as well for people having to go through and troubleshoot things from an operational point of view. 
Yeah, it's a lot simpler because you'd have the SD WAN, you have mm. uh, the simple single point of control there, where and the 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 monitoring's all there. The visibility tools in mm. Silverpeak are pretty excellent, I think. Most definitely, and obviously we've also looked at other technology as well, so I can sort of focus in, especially I think one of the fears that people have is you're moving across to SD-WAN, you're moving across the internet, you can no longer monitor your network end-to-end. So we've looked at other technology out there that enable us Mm. to really look at that end-to-end traffic flow um, Mm. and then tie into that to obviously do um, replicate sort of client application traffic flow. And then yeah. monitor the performance of that as well. It's, it's funny, isn't it? When you once you've got SD WAN and you've solved the WAN problem, gotten rid of routers and all of that pain that they caused, and the whole MPLS thing. Now all of a sudden you're free to spend time, like analysing traffic and and monitoring traffic, and to do these things that you've always wanted to do but never could before. Most definitely, and really create an application-aware network. I think the days of just looking at the network as um, standard MPLS, rolling out switches and things like that, we're very much more focused now on uh, how we can improve the performance of that application delivery. And it really enabled us to focus more on that and then also focus more on how can we start looking up uh, performing automation and things like that. And it has really helped us free up some of our time to focus on the newer technology that we should be running with. Well, yeah. I think we're running out of time, but so that does wrap up our Tech Bytes. Thanks, Chris, for joining us, and thanks to Silver Peak for being a valued sponsor. And thank you, yes, you, for being a valued listener. If you like what you hear, you can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, and rate us on iTunes. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.